This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda, our podcast, Spirit Matters, and we are found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our subject matter covers contemporary spirituality, and our guest today, uh, Dr. Vina R. Howard. She is an assistant professor uh, in the Department of uh, Philosophy at California State University, Fresno. Her latest book, Gandhi's Ascetic Activism, Renunciation and Social Action. Uh, Vina, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, Vina, perhaps uh, for the sake of our listeners, uh, uh, they can uh, get to know you a little better. Um, can you give us a little background about your own work in academia and how you came to uh, be uh, interested in Gandhi and in studying Gandhi's work? Great. So I was born and raised in India, uh, as you can tell from my accent. Uh, if you put me my picture, then people can see it too. Um, and then I moved to the United States um, for my graduate studies. And um, I have a few master's degrees including one in Eastern Classics and one in uh, Indian Philosophy, another one in Western Philosophy. And then I did my doctorate uh, in England uh, at Lancaster University. And I chose uh, the topic of Gandhi, uh, which was not on the horizon when I was doing my uh, graduate uh, earlier master's degrees. Um, if you uh, allow me to tell a little bit of background, the story. Sure. So my family, um, my parents and my big brother, who was six months old then, they moved or they migrated from um, Western Punjab, which is now known as Pakistan, and in 1947. And uh, my mother told me that they walked, you know, probably over 50 miles and before settling down in some camps, refugee camps, in now uh, India. And so my grandmother, my father, and um, my mother uh, told us not only the stories of uh, India's independence, uh, the partition, and the, all the troubles and trials they went through, uh, and also the role of Gandhi. So, um, so I grew up listening to Gandhi's stories, and then, and for sure, in schools also, you know, we celebrated Gandhi's birthday, and um, and we, you know, Gandhi was seemed like everywhere. His face was at least everywhere, mm -hmm. um, not not necessarily his message. So when I came to the United States, and I was doing more, uh, you know, work. My focus was on philosophy, um, you know, Sanskrit texts. And then one of the um, classes that I was asked to teach with my colleague uh, or senior professor at the University of Oregon was for adults. And I think I was the youngest of them all that time. And uh, the class was on Gandhi. And I said, I'm not expert in Gandhi. I, I, I know a little bit about him. And um, so this my friend, James Searle, who's an English professor, he said, well, you know about India and you know about Hinduism, you should teach Gandhi with me. I said, okay. 
And that class really raised a lot of questions for me about Gandhi because I had no clue about all this when I was reading it. Then I decided to go for my doctorate work on that, um, on Gandhi's study, specifically his spirituality or his um, Brahmacharya or celibacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I wanted to ask you, uh, a number of guests we've had on uh, have, uh, are people that are uh, very deeply involved in different spiritual practices. And a lot of them initially get involved with their own self-development. And then uh, at some point in their spiritual development, they feel they have a responsibility to go out and make social change for the better, uplift people. Uh, Gandhi is uh, obviously known for his social activism and what he did to uplift his people, and one could argue all people. Uh, But uh, did he also engage in spiritual practices that he utilized to uh, help him in his social work, and did he encourage those spiritual practices in others? Well, that's a great question. I mean, that is the philosophy of um, Gandhi's life and message, mm-hmm. the way you put it in the question, right? So for him, spirituality and this political life were not two different things. He saw human beings as moral beings, as spiritual beings. And um, that's why he's known as Saint Politician, Saint as, you know, um, hyphenated politician. And uh, it wasn't like contrived effort either to be a saint nor to be a politician. He uh, organically looked at um, the, the power of spiritual practices. And he experimented them, and I use that term in quotes because he himself calls the term, his autobiography, as my experiments with truth. And he experiments them in the field of politics, in social activism, social service. Um, But historically, it all began in South Africa. And if you, those of us who have watched the film, you know, Mm -hmm. Gandhi's so very famous, and in it, you know, when we see Gandhi in the train, and then he's asked to leave, right? And then he realizes on the train station when he sits all night long, what just had happened to him. And then the next day, the very next day, the Gandhi who himself was very shy, and he was not activist. He was not outgoing. He was not charismatic. That's how he tells us in his autobiography. And overnight he changes and he wants to fight against injustice. But how to go about it? Then he begins to read the texts of um, spirituality and philosophy and religious texts, including the Bhagavad Gita, the works of Tolstoy, Sermon on the Mount, and all these texts that he reads, then he finds that there is a different kind of method that can be used to resist violence and social injustices. Does, um, Veena, the um, origins of his activism um, you just mentioned, um, I was surprised to find, uh, and I hope it's true, you can tell me, that um, when he was a young man in India, um, he was not a terribly uh, spiritual guy, and and he discovered the Bhagavad Gita when he was a young uh, lawyer in London 
from what I read, when um, he met some theosophists. Is that correct? That's correct. So he was raised, so I want to backtrack. So he was raised in a, in a religious family or spiritual family. His mother was deeply uh, religious or spiritual. And I mean, again, the term religious, spiritual, mm-hmm. Hinduism, all the, there are, you know, religions are, I was just teaching my students today, are deeply spiritual. I mean, right. it's not like either or. So, um, so he was raised in a very spiritual family. And he tells us in his autobiography that how uh, this friend of their fathers used to come and read the Ramayana in the house and how they used to read, uh, to read Ramayana stories, how he was influenced by Harishchandra, who was a truthful king. So he was, he was not um, secular, the word I would use, mm-hmm. uh, just completely bereft of any background. But he had not, he was very young, he went to London. We forget that, that he's, you know, he's not 40 years old, but he's not right. 35 years old. He's very young, just right after teens. And um, when he comes to, uh, but he had not read the text per se uh, and analyzed them. But when he comes to England and then uh, London, when he sees and uh, meets the theosophist and, and then he begins to read the Bhagavad Gita and he discovers it really from the, first time and then he really but the message really so very interesting from India to England England to South Africa it's almost like a triangle so what he learns you know his personal background childhood stories experiences of his mother being a devoted um, mother and she's like an ascetic She's like a, you know, she does not eat for days uh, if the moon doesn't come out. Uh, so if they're fasting in the Indian women and uh, you have to eat in the evening when the moon comes out and the monsoon time, if the moon doesn't come out for some reason, the clouds are there and she won't eat that day. And Gandhi tells us in, in the Sarda Bible. So he has this model, but then he learns... Uh, more in uh, England, and also he becomes a member of vegetarian club, but it becomes all come together in South Africa. <laughs> so, uh, after that, that train incident, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, uh, I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Howard about what one of the spiritual practices that uh, I think began in South Africa for uh, Gandhi was, uh, was celibacy, was brahmachari. Uh, and Yes. Uh, it's also been written uh, in the last number of years, last decade or so, about many of uh, his the spiritual practice in regard to celibacy was uh, somewhat unusual and controversial, and also what he taught <laughs> others in regard to it. And uh, I would like you to address that. Great. Um, then it's a lot of spicy material on that, right? <laughs> so um, that's the one that people really get interested. So that's how I got interested in Gandhi. Okay. So in that class that I mentioned earlier, so one of the women said, why did Gandhi take a vow of celibacy? And um, my colleague friend, um, Jamal, said, I don't know, let's ask Veena. And I said, I have no clue. Why did he take that? Well, celibacy, and and, and we should point reason. out that he was a, a, a husband and a father when he did. Yes, yes. I was going to you know, add to that now that he was only thirty-six years old. He had four boys, 
and uh, he paints this picture himself that he enjoyed intimacy with his wife. <laughs> so, uh, and so why would he take? And then one woman in the class said, so how about his wife? You know, he's only thinking about himself and his married man. Is he thinking about um, her as well? And what is the connection between celibacy and political activism, if there are any connection? Or social activism. Mm -hmm. Why? I mean, there are many examples where people are not celibates and, and they're doing fine with political activism. <laughs> and there are many so, more. <laughs> So why is that? And I said, well, that's a great question, but I have no clue. So I began to study. I began to read. And that's my journey with, to, into my research mm -hmm. on Gandhi. And then I discovered very quickly that every biography, every book talks about Gandhi's celibacy. But there's no book on Gandhi's celibacy. Isn't that ironic? So um, I said, well, this is my chance to think about it more deeply. So my book is really, I call it aesthetic activism. It's really, it's about Gandhi's brahmacharya, which is simply translated as celibacy. But for Gandhi, it's a Sanskrit word brahmacharya, meaning uh, living in God, living in divine or divine conduct. So it really is the sexual part of sexual Abstaining from sexuality is a very small one part of it, one component of that conduct. Could you so expand Gandhi, on that a little bit, uh, Veena? Uh, because people think of the word brahmachari strictly as uh, sort of abstinence from sex, but it has, it has more meaning, and maybe you could expand on that a little. Yeah, good, thank you. Um, it is a, a, what happens because it came to be known as a, celibacy and abstaining our sexual abstinence because of the Indian Hindu system of what the first stage was called uh, studentship is called Brahmacharya state, right? And Brahmacharya state was a student abstains from in sexual conduct or engagement. And, but if you look at the etymology of the word itself, it's a divine conduct. So a moral conduct. So Gandhi says it doesn't mean just remaining uh, abstaining from sexuality, but it has a broader meaning. So what he uh, called it, the practice of all vows or virtues, um, not lying, which is um, truth, nonviolence, and non-thievery, um, self-control, all kinds of self-control, not the sexual control, but all forms of self-control. When he defined like that, then he had to include all, when he was doing the method of nonviolence, for him, ahimsa or nonviolence required to be celibate. Mm -hmm. Because he says that even sexual conduct which as fun or enjoyable or, you know, pleasant, it, it sounds and looks that it can have potential to create violence. And, and he was really speaking for his own experience, too, because he, he calls himself a dominating husband. He was not paying attention to, you know, his wife's uh, needs when he was young. And he was married at age 13. I mean, can give him a break, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. He's a little boy. And it's not something, we forget that. We have to bring, locate him in his you know, 13-year-old boy, and 
you know, arranged marriage. And, you know, it takes him not too long to figure out what he was doing is, is not the right behavior. Avina, uh, ritual, uh, how much was that a part of Gandhi's life? And uh, if it was, what, what rituals did he perform on a daily basis? Did he perform them himself or did he have Hindu priests uh, with him to do those rituals? Or was there a particular god or goddess that he was particularly connected to? Excellent question. I can write a paper on that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's part, a little part of my book, but it's a ritual for Gandhi. So Gandhi was not, even though he can't call himself, but he was a Sanatani Hindu. So he qualified with Sanatani Hindu, not just Hindus. But he was speaking to, or he was mobilizing a nation. In that nation lived Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Parsis, right? Men and women of all different religions. So he was making a nation for all people. So he consciously did not choose any Hindu symbol or symbols or practices in his rituals in his daily life. Um, so he does mention some of the uh, Hindu mythology, Hindu mythological stories. But he gives them a broader interpretation. But as far as the rituals are, his only ritual was that he did in his ashramas, reading from different texts of different traditions. So no no fire ritual, no worship of gods, no picture of gods in his ashrams. And that was his uh, daily sadhana? Did he have any meditation practice or yoga, any of the repertoire we think of in the yoga world? He only says that he does, you know, repetition of Ram, Ram, Ram. Mm. And he has um, his, so again, um, uh, his meditation is service of others. Mm-hmm. So he calls it karma yoga. Yeah, he's so in karma. very early on, his autobiography says, I made my religion the service of my fellow beings. Mm-hmm. And I can see that God can be realized through the service of others. Mm-hmm. So that, he, that became his religion. And he was, he was very, um, you know, in tune with what was going on. He knew if he wants to mobilize the masses. He cannot use the symbols of one religion. Mm-hmm. So therefore, he really abstained. Even his clothes we call Mahatma or Saint, but he did not wear okre robes, right? He's wearing a, what he calls it a peasant's robe, like a laborer, mm-hmm. like untouchable. He's not wearing a, you know, a sadhu's garb. Mm-hmm. And he's very conscious about it. He's a lawyer. He's a thinker. He's not doing things, of course. You know, there's some organicness about his uh, practices, but there is some conscious choices that he's making, mm-hmm. I think. Right. Dr. Howard, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, very few people in the history of, of, uh, of the planet have had the influence he's had. He may have been the most influential person of the 20th century. Uh, and mm-hmm. is there anything that was his... Jyotish chart, his astrological chart, uh, was it seen there in any way? Are you familiar with his birth time and his chart? And what was he destined 
in regard to uh, astrology uh, uh, to to be the person that he was? No, I have not. But my wonder, I have never read that written anywhere in my research. Mm-hmm. I'm gone. Uh, have you guys on the No, book? no, I, I, I haven't. I don't know if people know his time no. in birth chart, but that would be an interesting area. Uh, to, uh, I would be shocked if, if uh, some nobody has mm-hmm. uh, published works about yes. uh, Gandhi's uh, chart, certainly in India. So I am very interested. Now you remind me of my grandmother's story. <laughs> and my grandmother said to my mother, and not to me, I was very little when she passed away, that Mahatma Gandhi came. So again, that stories must have come from somewhere. Said he came to, he was born to liberate India. Mm. He incarnated to liberate India, Mother India, uh, from the colonial regime. And no one can kill him until India gains independence. And he has a, um, this power is with him that he's using the method of ahimsa and satyagraha, nonviolence and um, passive resistance, um, that no one else did. That's the yogic method uh, in the arena of politics. And he, so maybe something, if you're asking the astrological chart or this kind of stories which are circulating, I'm talking about the 19, maybe 30s or 20s, right? So something is going on in the public consciousness that people mm-hmm. are talking like that. Yeah. Um, Veena, um, Gandhi is known as this great apostle of nonviolence. Um, and he's also... Uh, extolled the virtues of the Bhagavad Gita, and it was his sort of um, touchstone uh, in his life and where he would turn. I mean, I've read so many quotes about his love for the Gita and his reliance on the Gita, which has raised a lot of questions in people's minds because um, the conclusion one can come away with from the Gita is not a nonviolent one. Arjuna goes to battle. So how did Gandhi reconcile nonviolence and the Kshatriya warrior uh, aspect of the Gita's message? Um, Very good point. So Gandhi, the way he he writes, so he used to quote, so I'm again talking from my scholarly research, so Gandhi was um, quoting the Gita to, to substantiate his method of nonviolence. And then his uh, colleagues and friends who were Hindus and said, you know, you can't just quote random verses from the Gita and say, look, you know, there is a nonviolence in the Bhagavad Gita. You need to do, write a commentary or interpretation of it or tell us more a holistic picture. What, what is the Gita about and how you justify your method of nonviolence? So Gandhi took time out of his um, very busy uh, schedule and he did ashram commentaries. It was a public commentaries every single day for many months, which was written by later on uh, as his, the uh, interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita, his translation of the Gita. So what he does, he takes the 
if he, he looks at the Bhagavad Gita, he says, no, the, the war is, he takes a war allegorically. He says, there's many ways we can read the text. If the Gita is not just written for that time where Arjuna is fighting the war against the Karvas, the Bhagavad Gita is giving a greater message, which is really, the, this is the inner battle. We have to fight the war within ourselves, with our base, um, you know, inclinations. And that's the one way he spiritualizes the teaching. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the second way when his, of course, he got a lot of, um, you know, c- criticism from his, when he was using it for nonviolent um, methods. Then he quotes the verses of the Bhagavad Gita, especially the chapter 2, uh, 19 verses, where it sets up who is a true yogi. What does it mean to really realize what the Bhagavad Gita is trying to, or who is a true yogi? In that, he says, the one has to really identify with the other. Again, the Vedanta's teaching. You, mm-hmm. the other, the enemy, there's no enemy. You are that person. He says, if I take that, the philosophy, the teaching of the Gita, I cannot, cannot use the method of arms. Mm-hmm. I have to resort to non-minus because we have to fight injustice, but we cannot fight with violent means. Wow. So mm-hmm. he's a very ingenious way to figure out how to use the Gita for his non-violent activism. Mm-hmm. Avina, um, when, I, when I was in college, uh, I read a biography of Mahatma Gandhi. It had a huge influence on my life. Even later on, when I saw the movie come out with Ben Kingsley, uh, it had a huge influence. Uh, you teach college. You teach students, young people. How do they uh, respond to the message of Gandhi today? Is it similar to how uh, my generation uh, responded to him? So, one more time, that how today's how students... You, today's students uh, yeah, back in the 60s, 70s, uh, there were a lot of American students, a lot of students in the West that were deeply influenced by the uh, teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, young people today, college students today, when you teach about his life, do they seem to be uh, deeply inspired? Does it seem to uh, influence them and affect their uh, behavior and their lives? Excellent. So I do teach. Uh, in every class, I bring uh, some component of Gandhi's um, method or life or his mm-hmm. teachings. And uh, they surprise me. Of course, I know we do critical analysis of Gandhi's teachings. And of course, it is not the 1960s and 70s, the era. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably you were raised because right. it was at different times. But I'm surprised. It surprised me that how much they, they don't know, first. Mm-hmm. They don't know much about Gandhi. And even they find out they are just so surprised a human being can do this or it's possible for a human being to do that. So even today's class, and, and we were watching Gandhi film in my class right now, and they just, they just go, how did he do it? How was he able to mm-hmm. do it? And it, bec- it becomes an inspiration. And for my Gandhi classes, keep students write in the evaluations how, I never say that it's a public university I teach, but you need to take a vow or <laughs> change yourself. <laughs> 
they said, oh, I took a vow of this, or this one student said, you know, I took a vow of celibacy for three months, or some says that I am not eating this kind of food, or I'm, it's amazing to see how they are, they surprised me, really, in, in the United mm-hmm. States. I gave a paper in India, so it's like making it full circle, about, you know, some of Gandhi's message, methods might be dead or is not relevant into this world. But I gave my students stories to in Indian conference. And that was very interesting for Indian audience to hear my United States students are the way they respond. And it's amazing. That is interesting. Speaking of which, uh, there's a flip side to that. Like most, mm-hmm. like most Americans, especially in my generation, we revered Gandhi as um, sort of, you know, some combination of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King all rolled up in one. And um, I was shocked uh, to find that in India, he's not as universally beloved as um, I thought he must be. I mean, his name is on all the paper, his face is on all the paper currency. And I found that there are people who are kind of anti-Gandhi or very cynical about Gandhi. Um, Can you explain this in in historical context? Yes, (laughs) I'll try. So uh, Gandhi, as we know, is a complex person. And he had an epic life. And when I study him and I see the criticisms, and I'll I'll outline them in a moment, that he himself opens up to um, criticisms by um, writing the details of his life that not many people will share. In autobiography, he bears his, you know, himself all the things that he does or steals a little or, you know, when his father is, um, dying when he's, um, he's with his wife. Uh, he didn't have to write those things, but he writes them. And that's the one thing that he opens up to criticism. So now, I don't know who, who you spoke with, but on my sense is that there were, this is not new things. Uh, the Gandhi has been revered by many that he was able to mobilize the masses in India, right? You know, millions followed him. But, Gandhi's, after Gandhi's assassination, one year he's considered, a couple of years, a great saint and people are worshipping him. After that, Gandhi almost fades away in the uh, background. And I say Gandhi's face is everywhere, but his message seems to be disappeared from India. And the criticism part um, is that some Hindus think that it's more political, reasons, more uh, personal reasons. Some Hindus think that he was, he took the idea of nonviolence um, to it, to an extreme. And he was too soft on the British. He was too soft on, too kind to Muslims. Uh, and um, so, and especially with the, after the partition of India, and he, he could have done more. So they were you mean done more things. to prevent partition? To prevent, to mm-hmm. prevent the partition. He was a leader, and he he must he failed um, and ended up in a violent um, end to this his so-called nonviolent movement. And those who lost their homes, 
there. My father and parents were given three hours notice to their, leave their home. So my mm. father was about critical of Gandhi. Mm. And um, so when you have that kind of experience, then one questions and said, well, we need to, and he was too um, tolerant. He's saying, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Jain, I'm a Sikh. What does that mean? You know, make up your mind what you are. <laughs> and uh-huh. so, or he's, he's too moral and he's too um, using this um, too charitable to all people that he wants to give too much um, money to Pakistan when, mm-hmm. you know, after this heartbreaking, mm-hmm. you know, event. So it is a lot of uh, social, political, personal, economical, uh, religious reasons are all implicated into. Right. You know, my answer to everyone is that I think you should read Gandhi. <laughs> so right. I think rather than just making up your mind, Go read Gandhi and then see and put in the historical, cultural context where he's coming from, what he's doing. Of course, he's not a perfect person. And he would say, the, the first one to say it, admit it, that he's not a perfect He's a human being. And I think that's another mistake. We just mm-hmm. put him in the pedestal, calling him a Mahatma or he's a great soul. Or he's a, and we take away from his the humanness and right. his flaws and his, you know, in everything was not perfect around right. That's a great point, and, and what great spiritual leader in the history of the world has not come under tremendous criticism, uh, either when they were alive and especially uh, uh, afterwards. Avina, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on with us today. Any final points you'd like to make and any final questions of Phil? You first, Vina. Um, (laughs) I just want to thank you and um, I think that Gandhi was after studying Gandhi and again I didn't start um, at a place where I was in love with his teachings because I come from a family where there was a lot of ambivalence about you know like I said my father wasn't sure Um, but I now after studying it he was way ahead of his time and the ideas that he was um, discussing or talking about now have been used all over the world. And people are experimenting with him, you know, from Philippines to Egypt and from mm-hmm. Palestine to, you know, North America in a very different settings yeah. that, and, and very different arenas that people are trying to use his methods. And I think it is the message and it's the method that one has to really study, think about it, analyze it, and um, and then move forward and um, to learn from those teachings. Study Gandhi's teachings uh, mm-hmm. before making up our mind. That's what I teach my students. And and we in the U.S. are the beneficiaries of that because of his influence on Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure people in South Africa were in, uh, aware of the his influence on uh, Nelson Mandela. Um, so thank you for this uh, uh, visit to one of the great the figures of the 20th century or throughout all of history, I suppose. And uh, I would encourage our listeners to read your book, Gandhi's Ascetic Activism, and any other material on Gandhi because it's a rich life that uh, keeps informing us as 
much as possible. And they can uh, Google Vena Howard online and um, see where she's doing any public talks. <laughs> and, and we'll post it up on, on our uh, podcast website. And we uh, Vena Howard, uh, assistant professor at the Department of Philosophy at, the, at Cal State University, Fresno. So we'll have all that up. But uh, uh, Dr. Howard, thank you so very much for your time. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm inspired now to go back and read more Gandhi. So I will do that. Thank you. <laughs> or at least see the movie again. Yeah. <laughs> yes, at least see the movie again. Thank you so much. All right. And thank you. I say, and right. Philip, to your point, that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. really brought Gandhi into the global context. Yeah. So thank you very much. Okay. Appreciate Thanks. that. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.